Psalm 74, verse 1. The psalmist writes, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you've dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet. And there's none among us who knows how long. How long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet, God, my king, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave them as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You've made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. That's an unhappy psalmist, but he's determined. He's an individual that's looking all around, and he knows one thing, among many other things he might know, he knows one thing for certain, that the glory of his God has been, in the eyes of the world, diminished. That he in his heart knows the glory of God and knows the God of that glory. But as he looks around and all the things that used to be associated with God being worshipped and God being praised and God being mighty and God being glorious and God being awesome and God being a faithful God of the covenant, all of those things as far as his eye could see in that moment had been taken away because the Babylonians had come in and taken the people captive and burned down the temple. And the temple had become really the the manifest object by which Israel associated the presence of God, though God had long since abandoned that temple because their worship had become profane. But now here he is among the inhabitants, and he's writing this song, and this is what he's asking. He's saying, God, where's your glory? Where's the glory of God? Now, my friends, I don't want to minimize anything God has done in your life or mine. I, I, I don't want to make light of the fact that he saved you from your sin through the sacrifice of his holy, righteous, and risen son. 
I I don't want to minimize the reality that because of what Jesus has done, we will spend eternity in paradise with him. I don't want to take anything away from that. It is actually because of that that I want to say he is worth so much more from you. He is worth so much more from me. And in a day where it has become popular to immediately dismiss any kind of preaching or teaching that talks about toil and striving and, 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 and working and serving because that now smacks of legalism or not resting in grace. My friends, I, 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 stand, about ever against, I stand against about every hyper-doctrine. Hyper-Calvinism, I stand it against. Hyper-Arminianism, I stand against it. But let me tell you, I stand against with all my might against hyper-grace, which leads us to believe that because Jesus did it all, we can now put our feet up on the table, smoke a cigar, have a glass of brandy, and wait till he comes back again. That's not the gospel. So let me give you and just take you through these verses. And let's just put ourselves in the sandals of this ancient songwriter. And let's just process what he's processing. And let's make sure we don't make it a history lesson, but we make it a present day application because I believe some of these things need to be addressed in our present day. And yes, right here on this missions base where God is entrusting so much in the present day, we've got to recognize it's not fun and games. It's glory, it's joy, it's peace, it's awesome, but it's not fun and games. So what does it look like? Well, first of all, Let's see what the psalmist was sensing. He's very clear in verse number one. He's sensing an absence of God's presence. He asked the questions. He's saying, he's saying this, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Those are questions that are often asked when we are reaping what we wish now we had never sown. We come to that place where we recognize in hindsight that we had many opportunities to straighten it out, get it right with God, to to lay down, honor him, to repent, whatever we want to call it, and yet we did not, whether it's an individual or a people group. So ultimately, God cannot prove to be the celestial hypocrite. He cannot endorse our disobedience. He cannot just turn a blind eye to the rebellion in our hearts. He he will woo us and he will be faithful and he will be patient. But ultimately he will be true to his own holy name and he will bring to pass what he says he will bring to pass. What is it? Chastisement. Discipline. Now you, you and I may not like that, but it doesn't make it untrue. That's just the way he operates because he's a good father. And good fathers don't just um, mollify their children. They don't, they don't just coddle their children. Good fathers discipline their children so that they'll bring honor to the family name. And so that is what has happened here, but yet it feels like a very terrible place. And that's why the psalmist says, is this, is this forever now? Is this the way we're going to be relating forever? Loss, fear, and absence of your presence? He, he even in, invokes the, hey, I'm, I'm part of the flock. I'm, I'm a sheep in your pasture. You're my shepherd, Lord. The reality was, as he's writing these things, because um, he didn't sense the presence of the Lord in a land of captivity. And yet I love the fact that he didn't give up and he didn't stay silent. He recognized what was wrong and he was motivated to press into it. And he's saying, in essence, Lord, where are you now? 
And it is that very question that opens the door to everything that's going to follow. It is an absence of the presence of God that serves as a catalyst for the psalmist aligning himself back for the glory of God. You know, one of the things that God does in mercy to his people is there are times where he will withdraw his presence just to see if we notice. Just to see if we care. Just to see if we become so super skilled at propping up what appears to be his presence with the works of our own flesh. And so sometimes God just says, I think I'm just going to take a step back. Doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that he's toying with us. He's just allowing us to find out if we think we are good enough without him. And any time it happens where God is showing mercy, there's going to be a remnant that says, hey, I appreciate what we got going on around here, but has anybody noticed that the Spirit hasn't shown up in a while? Has anybody noticed that we could do all of this stuff if he never showed up again? Has anybody noticed that the things that only he can do aren't getting done and all the things we're saying he's doing, we're actually doing it ourselves? But we don't talk like that because we don't want to mess up the vibe in the room. Well, consider it messed up this morning, amen? It's an absence of presence, which led him to wonder if there was an absence of promise in verse 2. I like what he says. He says, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. You see, the psalm writer was a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham. The the psalm writer knew about the covenants to Abraham, the covenants to Moses, the covenant to Noah, the covenant to David. The psalm writer knew about this, and yet when you're living in the land of captivity, the last thing you're really feeling flowing in your life is the promises of God toward you. So he's sensing the absence of presence. He's he's saying, Lord, remember us. You, You brought us unto yourself. You chose us. We never would have chosen you, but you came after us through Abraham, and you came after us in Egypt and redeemed us as a people, millions of us, and and you shepherded us, and you brought us into the land, and you established the covenants, and Lord, we know, I love the fact, by the way, that this Israelite knew that in spite of their disobedience as Israel, that the covenants had not been terminated. Beware of the doctrine that says, oh yeah, well, Israel crucified their Messiah, therefore God never has any plans for them again. That's straight out of the pit of hell. Because God can't be God and not be faithful to his promise to Abraham. He can't. That's for a different day. But this psalmist knows, he's like, that covenant, that covenant was for us, Lord. Remember us. Verse 3 through 8. Ultimately, this is what begins to motivate, motivate him. It's not just the absence of God's presence and the seemingly absent promises but it was the absence of honor now he's starting to look around look at what he sees he says lord direct your steps to the perpetual ruins he's talking about jerusalem the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary that wasn't metaphorical that is a physical reality they destroyed the temple in 586 bc he says your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place that describes the the babylonians coming into the temple into the place that was once so sacred and roaring and shouting in victory as they destroyed the place. He set up, they set up, he said they set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. All of its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. He's describing his witness of what they did to the temple. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. 
I, I have to slow down a little bit here. This is when I begin to know that the psalmist is not just complaining about the trouble he got himself into. The psalmist is wanting to be remembered. He's noting the absence of the presence of God. But when the psalmist begins to call on God to do something, the psalmist doesn't say, hey, you need to do this for me because I don't deserve what's going on. Hey, Lord, I'm one of the good guys. You're letting the bad guys off scot-free. I'm one of the good guys. Why don't you help me out here? He doesn't put up anything to barter with God on. If you've ever tried to barter with God, you know you lose, right? Because we don't have anything that he needs. He's got everything that we need. And the only way that we can connect to that is not by demonstrating how worthy we are of it, but by resting in his grace and his goodness. And the psalmist was beginning to do that. Why? Because he's saying, God, did you see what they did to your house? Lord, that house represents your name. And Lord, they took hatchets to it and they took fire to it. And they took um, destruction inside of it. And Lord, they put up their banners in the house where your name used to be lifted up. And Lord, that they have said that they have subdued us and ruined us. And Lord, they didn't just stop at the temple. Anywhere people met in your name in the land, they have destroyed all of that. He's describing historically which actually, what actually took place in Israel when the Babylonians came in and they razed the land. I mean, they just, boom, they tore down everything, including the temple. And now the psalmist is their captive in their land. We don't know how long. And he's recognizing that their uniqueness, the Jews' uniqueness in God had been temporarily forfeited through their neglect as a people, through their compromise as a people, through their rebellion as a people, and through their presumption. I believe, this is just me, you don't have to agree with me, that the number one sin that it caused Israel to go into captivity was their presumption that because they were people of covenant, that God would never do anything drastic to them. And so they kept taking it up a notch, and God kept sending messengers, and they just kept killing the prophets. And I believe what happened in their heart is they took their solid standing in covenant for granted, and they presumed that they could get away with things that God had already deemed as disobedience. And listen, he's merciful, he's kind, he's patient, but he's holy. And holiness cannot turn a blind eye to sin. And holiness must keep its word. And so now the psalmist was sensing all of these things. Now, this is not where it's going to end. It's a sad beginning to this this morning. But, but listen to why this is important. There is something within the human heart, some of us, not all of us in the room, but some of us, where we only recognize the value of something after we've lost it. That's what had happened to Israel. They had to lose it in order to proper, properly value it. And what, what the psalmist is articulating here is the hope that the loss they had experienced would somehow connect to God's commitment to his own glory in the land. Because the rest of this is going to be about God, your glory is being diminished in the eyes of the people. And the psalmist knows that if there's one thing God is always committed to, it is the glory of his own name. So go down into verses 9 through 11 with me. We saw what he was sensing, the absence of presence, promise, and honor for God. Look at what he is asking. First of all this, where are the voices of the prophets? 
He says in verse number nine, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there's none among us who knows how long. So in captivity, the prophetic voice was gone. The very prophets that when they were in the land, they weren't listening to the prophets. They weren't listening to the word of God. They weren't honoring the Lord as he sent those prophets. As a matter of fact, they so hated the message of those prophets right before Babylon came down, Nebuchadnezzar came down, that they, they literally killed the prophets so they didn't have to listen to their sermons. And now on the backside of it, they're saying, we need a prophetic word. We need a word from the Lord. God's not speaking and we can't bear the silence. What is he thinking? What is he doing? What is he saying? By the way, it also mentions there, and the Hebrew word, I believe, it's most often used in the Old Testament. It's translated signs there. It can mean banner. It can mean a mark on somebody. But most often, it's translated from miraculous signs. And that's the way it was first mentioned, this Hebrew word, in the book of Exodus, where, where Moses was doing the miracles, the signs, and the wonders in the court of Pharaoh. And so the psalmist says, where are the signs? Where's the prophetic voice? And where are the supernatural manifestations of your presence and your commitment to us? Now, this is why I don't want this to be a history lesson. Because I think these are questions we need to be asking today. Where are the true prophetic voices? Where are the Holy Spirit-soaked voices of truth? Not ones that play knick-knack paddywhack with you prophetically. But those that will tarry in the presence of the Lord and come to you in the spirit of the Lord and share with you the truth of the Lord. And not just when the cameras are rolling. And not just when everybody's gathered around to applaud the accurate woman of God for giving that ninth accurate prophecy. Maybe it's real or maybe it's not, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, where is the one that will communicate the heart of God to a generation? Where's the one that will stand and speak for the Lord? And where is the power that should always back up the message and the messenger? I I think, brothers and sisters, listen, I told you this was going to be, I asked the Lord if I could preach it intensely, so I'm not going to apologize for it. But don't you wonder these things? I don't want an occasional shower. I want a downpour. I want a hurricane. I, I want a typhoon of God's presence. We cannot just go giving ourselves a free pass by saying, well, God's omnipresent. He's always here. That's not what I'm talking about. I think omnipresence, the way we understand it, has become a a crutch for the church. People get up, Lord, we need your presence. We need your presence. And some slick theologian will say, "Uh, by the way, he's present everywhere. He's omnipresent. You know, this isn't holy, but I want to, you know, just, that's not what I'm talking about. He's omnipresent. In the ISIS camps, amen? Is that what we're shooting for? I want his presiding presence, his undeniable presence, his earthquake presence, his shaking presence, his calming presence, his glorious presence. You know, I... I, Such a fine line between being truthful and being badgering. I don't want to be badgering. But man, I, I, I know for a fact... There have been times I have experienced a level of the fullness of God, both privately and publicly in services, where on a couple of occasions, I've been saved 25 years almost, and there have been times where I've just said, you're going to have to stop. I cannot take 
60 more seconds of you doing whatever you are doing. You are killing me with your goodness, literally. There have been times where his presence has been so heavy on me that I couldn't walk, that I couldn't, that literally. You talk about embarrassing. I'm at a conference with my wife and a Baptist friend, and as a friend prays over Amy, the Holy Spirit hits me, and I have to go sit on the front row like that. And then an hour and a half later, I'm at lunch, and I, I can't talk, and I'm crying, and I've got no explanation for it, except it's the presence of the Lord. Now listen, I don't chase experience. I've never chased God so I can get one of his toys, but I do pursue him. And when we step into his presence, there are occasions where it's going to be palpable, where we're going to know it. But so many of us, friends are satisfied with cruising through our Christian life. And we know he's good, but we haven't experienced his goodness. We know he's powerful, but we haven't experienced his power. We know he's overwhelming, but we are a little underwhelmed. Why? Because we are not jealous for the glory of God. It's because we have not been brought to this place that the psalmist was at. You know, where are the voice of the prophets, he asked. I ask it too. You know, prophets will speak the truth of God without fear of people. Prophets will reveal the heart of God from all of eternity. They'll tell you how he is, and they won't have to say, now, you, 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 you may not want to hear this, but they're just going to tell you, thus saith the Lord, this is how God self-reveals. Prophets declare the will of God for the direction of any generation. We don't have any prophetic direction in our country. I want you, I, who's the voice? Who's the human voice for the church in America? Who is it? Who are we trusting? Who do we listen to? I know I believe in the priesthood believers. I understand we could all hear God for ourselves. But I'm going to tell you something. Regardless of what you think about him, when Billy Graham died, we lost something. Maybe he started and was in the middle and he was, that was his sweet spot. Maybe he tapered off at the end. But I, I, I dare you to speak a word against that man and expect God to smile on it. Because he had a generation. He had their ear. Why? Because he had God's ear. God had Billy's ear. And he spoke what he heard. Where is that? Prophets are uncompromised and unapologetic. There's a lot of prophets in the land, but God can't use them because they dabble in the world so much that they, they can't be used. There, there, there's, prophet, there's a ton of prophets in the land, but they haven't made up their mind yet that they want to just live as a prophet of God. Because of all the false prophets of the world speaking other things to them. Where are the prophets? Where are the signs? Where are the wonders? Where are the healings? You know, I posted online a, a quote by Leonard Ravenhill this week. A lot of people responded to it, and it's funny because he says what we. We all recognize, but I don't know that we're ready for a solution. I'm going to paraphrase Leonard Ravenhill, but he says this. He says, you don't want revival. You're praying for a revival. You don't want revival. He said, revival is going to, he was talking to preachers. Revivals are going to mess your sermons up. They're going to mess the congregation up. They're going to ruin your Sunday because you're not going to make it to kickoff. Like, Lord, send revival and finish up before 1230. We, want, we love the idea of revival, but not the price. 
not the cost. You know what will be the greatest moment and the most challenging moments in your life as a member of Newbridge and IHOP Mission Base? When God sends a revival. Amen. You're going to be glorious, but it's going to fry you in some ways. You know why? Because he goes after every heart. Amen. He goes after every secret place. He, he, he exposes every relationship. He brings to light every word that was spoken in secret. And all the gossip said, no, I know you ain't going to say amen to that. When revival hits, churchianity tucks its tail between its legs and goes and hides under the porch of religion. When revival hits, and friends, I'm going to tell you something. I can only speak for myself and the three other uh, lead pastors here. We do not want to keep doing anything if we ever lose our pursuit of the glory of God as it manifests in revival. We have no appetite for church. We have no appetite for little dainty, little quaint, little nice little ministries that we can perpetuate. We throw a little bit of this at it. Throw, we're done for it. I want the bulldozer of the Holy Spirit to come and demolish everything that doesn't glorify God. Verse 10, he asks, where's the refuting of the lies? How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? The enemy to revile your name is the enemy to revile your name forever. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, Lord, how, do, how long will all the people who don't know you have the loudest voice in the land? Lord, how, how is it that the godless have the platforms? How is it, Lord, that the false prophets fill their stadiums? How is it, Lord, that those that actually revile your name apparently garner the amens of the culture? And what he's asking is this. He's asking twofold. How long is this going to go on? Because he knows the second thing. Because you're the only one that can reverse things. You see, ultimately, the psalmist, all he had to do was get historical to find out how this all happened. The church went mute. When, when Israel went mute and their praise was empty and their lives were compromised and they were worshiping Yahweh on the Sabbath and they were going through the rituals of the sacrifices and the cleansings and the offerings and then they would run over and sacrifice a baby to Molech. That's where they lost their influence. That's where their message had no power. That's where it went from becoming the, the outflow of an everlasting covenant to being just something they hijacked in order to give them freedom of heart to do whatever they wanted because after all, God won't break his covenant with us. We're Israel. And so they're asking, where's the refuting of the lies? Listen, I, I, I don't... There's, I'm just not okay with the message of our culture. I, I expect it. What I'm not okay with is the church in the name of just being friendly and loving, just saying, mm -hmm. yeah, I feel what you're saying. I feel, yeah, yeah, abortion's fine and gay marriage is fine and, 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 and compromise and fine and sleeping with your girlfriend is fine. That's Because we just want to be loving. We don't want to come off as critical or judgmental. It's a fig leaf. It's a stinking fig leaf that we hide behind. And God says, 
you need to be open and naked with who I am and what my holy character is. And you can speak the truth in love. And what's happened is the church, in order to, we, we overcorrected because we didn't want to be lumped in with all the flaming fundamentalists and those foolish people that falsely represent Christ by picketing the funerals of soldiers that have died and use that moment to express their hatred for homosexuals. We, and so we didn't want to be those guys, and God help us, we don't want to be those guys. So what did we do? We overcorrected. We came way over here. And we say, whatever you want to do is fine. That's okay. Just love Jesus. Just love God. Pray this prayer. Just pray this prayer. And if you're really serious, get baptized. But don't worry about changing your life. Don't know. You don't have to do that. No, come on. Just tithe. Yeah, just tithe. Yeah. Ask Jesus into your heart, get baptized, and tithe. And the lies just keep mounting up and mounting up. And the church is just trying to be polite because we don't know how to be truthful in love. It's like we, we've decided we either have to be all truth, which comes off as a tablet of stone with the Decalogue written on it, and we're, you know, we're fundamentalist legalists, or because we don't want to do that, we, we come off and we really have no distinction in our messaging from the world at all. It's just add Jesus to whatever you want to do with your life and call yourself a Christian. Listen, friends, that's a lie. If you're in the room today and you just added Jesus to your life and there's been no change, there's been no inward change, there's been no outward change, you believe the lie. You say, Jeff, that sounds judgmental. It, it is. I'm, the Bible says he that is spiritual judges all things. That's what the scriptures say. And why, why am I able to say it? Because the Bible also says if you are in new Christ, you are a new creation. Old things pass away, and behold, all things come new. So it's not me judging according to my own judgment. It's me coming against the lies of a generation that tells people to add Jesus to their life. Don't change. Don't, you don't have to worry about sacrificing or giving or following or leading. Matter of fact, that whole thing about him saying you can't be my disciple unless you carry your cross, he was just using metaphors there. Yeah, he was using a metaphor that says this, you have to die to yourself, or if you don't, that proves you're not really my disciple. But do you see it? Man, I can feel it in the room right now. I can feel it. Stop. I'm telling you the truth. I, listen, do you really want to die and stand before the Son of God in all of his brilliance and blazing glory, after you lived your life in indifference and disobedience and presumption and immorality and negative, uh, negativity towards his holy word, do you really want to appear before him and say, yeah, but I prayed that prayer. They told me to pray the prayer where you, I asked you into my heart. See, that's the lies. And amazingly, that's the lies of the church. Why? Because we've started believing the lies of the culture. And because we've believed the lies of the culture, we've modified the message of the church. And now the modified message of the church is running parallel to the lies of the culture. And so the psalmist is saying, how long, God, is the foe to scoff? How long are they going to laugh at the church? I'd rather them hate us than laugh at us. Because if, if they hate us, it means we're, we're, we're pouring salt into some open wound. If they laugh at us, it's because they don't take us or our king seriously. You all with me? So here we go. Where is the vindication of your glory? 
quickly. He, he says to God, why are you holding back your hand, your right hand? I love this. Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. I'm going to give you this because none of us pray like this. I wish we'd pray like this. I don't pray like this. I'm, too, I'm just too scared. But this is what he says. He's saying, I mean, and, and listen, all that he's reciting is true. But look at his boldness. He's saying to the God of the covenant, the God whose glory is being diminished. This is how we'd say it today. How come they're still talking and you're not moving? How come their lives are exponentially growing and you're not tearing them up? Lord, I see your hand in your pockets. Will you take your hands out of the fold of your garments? We would say, would you take your hands out of your pockets? And listen to what he said, and destroy them. Now, that's not the message of the church either, okay? I'm not advocating that. But I am saying this. At least he was mad about what was going on in the culture. At least he was perturbed. At least he was unsettled. At least he was upset. At least he was sensing some righteous indignation about what he saw going on. At least he was urgent about the matter. At least he wasn't content to just sit another week while everything in the culture is inflamed and the church has the answer and we're content to get in our weekly meetings, in our prayer meetings, and just call out to God but never actually be the salt and light in the culture that changes it. Why do you hold back your hand, Lord? God says, why are you holding back yours? We're actually asking God to do stuff that he told us to do. <laughs> Lord, let your glory be known. He said, okay, get out of the building and go let my glory be known. Go out and tell people about my son. Lord, we need the power to cast out demons. You've got the power to cast out demons. If you live a holy, sanctified life and fast and pray, you'll have that power when you need it. Oh, it feels alone this morning, but I shall keep on preaching. There's a place in a sermon, just for those of you that aspire to preach, there's a place where you're aware of what the audience is feeling, and, and then if you can just get over this hump, that's your sweet spot. And I'm almost there, so be patient. Here we go. I know what time it is. We have a, we have a memorial service at 1.30 today, and if you have to leave, I'll be done before 1.30, but if you have to leave... I understand, but I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to shortchange us on this. The psalmist is jealous for the glory of God, and it's urgent with him. Why? Because he now sees in the backwash of a time where God's presence wasn't being felt, God's promises weren't being experienced, God's name wasn't being honored. He's saying this is wrong. That's a prophetic stirring. Some of you. You're, you're called to be a prophet in your generation. You're called to be a forerunner. I'm not even just speaking to the old, uh, young people. But literally, he has wired you, just hardcore wired you for war in the kingdom. Amen. It doesn't give us an, an excuse to be obnoxious. Listen, I don't talk to non-believers the way I'm preaching this today. That's not smart. That, that's not how you address non-believers with the yelling and everything. But we're family in here. We're the people of God, man. If we, if we can't stir each other up, if we can't confront one another, and some of you are prophets in your generation, and the enemy only has one agenda for you, to keep you talking about other stuff. To keep you so fixated on the man in the Oval Office that you forget about the man on the throne. 
So look at what the psalmist starts declaring. Look at verse 12. So he's all fired up. And then he says this. He, he, he starts declaring who God is. He says, Yet God my king is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. He, he, just, he seems to just kind of calm himself in this moment. Last thing he said was, Lord, take your hand out of your pocket and destroy these people. And then he's, he's instructing himself. He says, yet my God is the king and he's everlasting. He is of forever. He's just reminding himself that, that God knows what he's doing and that God is sovereign and that God is ruling and that God has um, the innate ability to do the right thing at the right moment with the right people for the right effect. And so the psalmist is processing in the first 11 verses, and in verse number 12, he's like, you're the king. Verse 13, he also knows and declares what God did. So he gets historical. All of verse 13, 14, and 15, he is using very ornate language and picturesque language to talk about God delivering Israel through the Red Sea, and he uses the metaphors of monsters and Leviathan to talk about Pharaoh and his army being killed in the Red Sea. He says, you divided the sea by your might. Now, I want you to notice the repetition of the word you and your. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open the springs and the brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. You know what he's talking about there? He had already asked, where's the signs? Where's the signs? And when he didn't see the signs in the present... He took comfort from the reality that God had proven that he can work signs in the past. And he goes back to the place of Israel's national deliverance out of their most severe bondage. Remember, he's writing this while he's in bondage in Babylon. And he's now remembering what God did to Israel when they were in bondage in Egypt. And he's, he's literally encouraging himself and he's declaring the goodness of God. He said, that monster Pharaoh and his army, and you cut up Leviathan, and you split the seas. And then he references uh, bringing the streams out of the rock. And what he's saying is, God is never at a loss. God has never lost his ability to take an impossible situation. A Babylonian captivity, an Egyptian enslavement, your personal little hell that you might be going through right now. He's never at a loss. And one of the reasons he allows us to experience those things is, Lord, help us, it's true, but when we have everything going swimmingly, when there are no pressures, there are no struggles, there are no problems, there are no pains, there are no losses, when we are in those moments, we're not really jealous for the glory of God, and we're not really urgent. We don't live with urgency. It is actually the crucible and the fire and the difficulty and the, the not yet that come into our lives that begin to motivate us to say, Lord, more of you, more of you, God, more of you. Lord, I'm sick of my own successes. I'm sick of my own glory. I'm sick of my own achievements. I'm sick of my own beauty. I'm sick of my own name. Where are you? We want you, Lord. And that's the cry that gets answered by God. He says, God, you've done this before. You know, we were singing earlier, for from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. From you is easy, because that means we're receiving. To you is hard, because we're releasing. He deserves the glory in both. Some of you are in a season of receiving. Don't forget his glory. Don't lose your urgency. 
I'm not a guy that goes around looking for trouble. Man, it'll find you. You're living for Jesus, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. You're not alone in the trouble, you're in trouble. So I don't want to be in trouble. Well, stop believing, living for Jesus. Right. Nobody's going to go there. But if you're living for Jesus, we don't have a right to be surprised when trouble finds us. And so when we go further down, who God is, what God did, and where God reigns, verse 16 and 17. He's still on the you and yours kick, verse 16. Yours is the day, yours also is the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of all the earth. You have made summer and winter. This is important because in, in, in prosaic language, he, he's taking us to extremes. He's saying that, Lord, yours is the day and night. That means God reigns over time. The day and the night represents just the spectrum of one day. That's time. It's a measure. And he says, God rules them both. The day season where everything's bright and sunny. The night season when it's dark and scary. God rules them both. He said, you've established the heavenly lights and the sun. So he is God of the cosmos. He's God in the stellar regions. He's not bound to the laws of earth. He's not bound to the, the, the very boundaries that you and I have to work within. He says, you've made summer and winter. And all of this is just simply saying, God, I'm, I'm refreshing myself and reminding myself that you have comprehensive reign over both time and space. That you're big. You see, the problem is, is when we get into a captivity, when we get into a night season, God gets small in our minds. God, God has, in our minds, the potential to be reduced by us, and he's no bigger than the trouble we're in. And what the psalmist is saying is, yeah, I'm stuck in Babylon. I'm in captive. They burned down the temple. They won the, the fight. They demolished us. They slaughtered us. But my God is actually not bound to Babylon. My God's not even bound to the Middle East. My God's not even bound to the earth. My God's not even, well, my God's not bound at all. And he starts reminding himself of just whom he belongs to. So we get down into the verse 18 through 23. It's the last chunk. I appreciate your patience. And this is how the psalmist fights his battles. Kind of like that song. It's not deep. Not every good song has to be deep. Sometimes it just needs to get where you are. This is how I fight my battles. Come on. First of all, he's rooted in the glory of God. If you, if you want to win your battles, you fight from the standpoint that you're fighting for the glory of God in your life. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. He brings it all the way back to God, and he is in essence saying, Lord, this affects me, but it's not about me. And he appeals to the justice of God. He appeals to the holiness of God. He appeals to the glory of God. For for God magnifies his name throughout all the earth. And his name is representative of his promises and his covenant and his character. And he says, Lord, the ones who are winning scoff at you and they actually revile your name. They don't just ignore your name. They actually viciously oppose your name. I don't know if lately, if any of you that are being opposed unjustly, being treated unfairly, being oppressed unceasingly, have stopped to tell on your enemy, but you ought to do that. Tell the Father 
all about your enemy. He said, well, Jeff, he already knows. Well, see, you're defaulting again to his omniness, omniscience. Well, he already knows. Well, guess what? He wants to hear you talk to him about them. And it's in the talking to him about them that oppress you and resist you that you begin to get his heart about them. And I have found in my life that God usually doesn't take care of my enemies before he takes care of my own heart. It was a good word. Would you tweet that? Thank you. Appreciate that. He says, Lord, they're scoffing and they're reviling your name. He just tells on them. He was convinced of the promises of God. I love this. This is precious. Verse 19, don't deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Don't forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. I love what he does. He, he appeals to the paternal heart of God. He says, Lord, we are your dove. Have you ever been intimidated by a dove? Run! It's a wild, rabid flock of doves. <laughs> Nobody's afraid of doves. We're drawn to them. Jesus said you need to be as harmless as a dove. Why did he pick a dove? Because they're gentle, they're mild, they're, you know, they're not terrifying. So we, we see the psalmist take that picture, and he says... We're your doves. We need you. They're the beasts. They're the wild beasts, Lord. And if you don't protect us and preserve us and promote us, we'll end up getting turned over to the wild beasts. And then he appeals to the covenant. He reminds God of God's covenant with them. That's the only hope Israel had. That was it. They couldn't plead their righteousness. Have you ever gotten in trouble and told the Lord, if you'll get me out of this, I'll do better? How many of you still, uh, did you have a perfect, complete record of doing better? No, because what happened? When he got you out of the trouble, what'd you do? You lasted two weeks, right? Because when you're, when you're bargaining with God according to your own power and when you're resting in your own abilities, you will fail. But when you come before the Lord and you say, Lord, I can't do anything. I don't have any promises to make you. I don't have anything to bargain with. Uh, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen when you get me out of this. All I know is that you've got promises over my life and these promises right now can't take place because of the circumstances I find myself in. So Lord, I humble myself. I don't have anything to present to you. I don't have anything to, to negotiate with. I just know I need you and I'm your dove. I'm your dove, Lord, and there's wild beasts bearing their fangs at me, and they got blood on their mouths, and Lord, they're looking for the next chomp out of me, and Lord, I need you. Just remember with me that he's a better daddy than any of us in the room. My boy comes to me like that. My daughter comes to me. I don't care what they did to get themselves in trouble. If somebody outside the family is messing with my kids, I'll deal with my kids later, but I'm going to deal with the enemy. I'm going to take care of that business. Why? Not because I'm father of the year, but because that's what dads do. And so the very last thing, really, appealing to the justice of God, look at this. Let not the downtrodden turn their back in shame. Let, let the poor and the needy praise your name. Arise, O oh God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you which goes up continually. Um, I counted no less than 38 times in this psalm, 38 times in however many ver 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 uh, verses, where the psalmist says, you, yours, you, yours, you, yours. His whole petition for God 
is that God might manifest his glory for his name. You have to come to that point, my friends, all of us do, where we recognize that it's not church talk. It's actually active kingdom truth. You don't belong to you. You don't. Listen, you steward you, but you don't own you anymore. The only people that own themselves are people that have not bowed to Jesus. They fully own themselves. That's why they don't come to Christ, because they don't want to renounce ownership. But every single person that comes to Jesus Christ has renounced their autonomy. It means that you don't belong to you. You didn't add Jesus to your life. You died. He rose you up. Why? For his glory. And by the way, his plan's better than yours. It's not like you got a shaft on that. You didn't get the raw end of the deal. Because your plan never would have brought you the, 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 the joy and the fruit and the paradise that his plan is. But we don't get to retain our autonomy when the church is ready to embrace that message. Revival can come. But to the degree that we share the throne with the Son of God. Scooch over, little Jesus. Scooch over. We scooch over. Scooch. I want to sit on the throne of my heart too. Will you move? Just give me a little bit of it. You got 90% of it. Let me just, come on. Now, I'm, I'm giving that kind of silly object lesson, but it's actually, it's actually going on in people's hearts all the time. You're not autonomous over yourself. You don't have autonomy over your time, your abilities, your money, your pursuits, your leisure, your entertainment, your possessions, none of it. We actually, we get to operate with the Lord. We get to operate with him. And the understanding of that, that koinonia, that fellowship, that partnership, is that he is with us. Some people might say, well, Jeff, you can take that too far, man. Yeah, we're not in any danger of taking that too far. We're not even close. We're not even, we're barely on the grid. Some of you, some of the watch later, some of you were born to be a radical for Jesus. And you're letting the world clip your wings. We want power. We want Virtue, we want fruit, we want purpose, we want the touch of God on our lives, we want to cast out demons, we want to raise the dead, we want to heal the sick, we want to help the blind to see, we want all of that, and there's nothing wrong with those desires. But we nickel and dime our lives away in stuff that robs us of our authority and power. I want you to hear me on this. Man, I'm, I'm, I am so trying to close. I, just, I feel the Holy Spirit on this. I feel like this is a word right now for, for anybody that hears it. Matthew 12. Jesus says, what comes out of your mouth reveals what's going on in your heart. What we communicate is evidence of what's going on within us. What you tweet, what you post, what you share, 
what you like, what you Instagram, what you about. It's all evidence of who owns your heart. I'm, I'm going I'm to give you this. Worship team, just come on up because I'll never quit. Some of you will never have the power of God on your life like you want it until you stop obsessing over politics. You will never, you hear me, this is a word today. You will never have an anointing in your life because you are standing more either for or against a political position or individual and you're actually deceived to think that God can bless you with his best when he doesn't even have room on the throne of your heart to give you what you really want in your more lucid spiritual moments. Say, well, Jeff, what do we do? It's not hard. You repent and you quit. I'll challenge you right now. Go a week without reading or posting or reviewing all of your favorite online news. Just go a week and don't do it. Repent for a week. Just repent for a week. Lord, I repent from being politically and culturally fueled for a week. And instead, I'm going to imbibe the word. I'm going to tarry in prayer. I'm going to fast if I need to. I'm going to share my faith. I'm going to read the word of God. I'm going to do that instead. And tell me that this time next Sunday, if your worship experience in the week that preceded it isn't altogether different than what you've been experiencing. You cannot fellowship with the king on the throne when you're either throwing stones or bowing down at the man in the Oval Office. You can't. American politics is robbing the church of the glory of God because we are fighting for that which is temporary and we're ignoring he who is eternal. Will you stand to your feet?